Hey guys, it's Mrs. Puffer back with another One Chapter Wednesday episode. This time we are reading Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And if you are a shoe person, Phil Knight is the creator of Nike Shoes. And uh, he originally wrote this memoir for adults. This version of Shoe Dog is the young reader's edition that he just edited to help young readers move a little more quickly through the text. So we're gonna start with chapter one, Dawn. I was up before the others, before the birds, before the sun. I wolfed down a piece of toast, put on my shorts and sweatshirt and laced up my green running shoes, then slipped quietly out the back door. I stretched my legs, my hamstrings, my lower back and groaned as I took the first few balky steps toward the cool road into the fog. Why is it always so hard to get started? There were no cars, no people, no signs of life. I was all alone, the world to myself, though the trees seemed oddly aware of me. Then again, this was Oregon. The trees always seemed to know. The trees always had your back. What a beautiful place to be from, I thought, gazing around. Calm, green, tranquil. I was proud to call Oregon my home. Proud to call little Portland my place of birth. But I felt a stab of regret, too. Though beautiful, Oregon struck some people as the kind of place where nothing big had ever happened, or was ever likely to. If we Oregonians were famous for anything, it was an old, old trail we had to blaze to get here. Since then, things had been pretty tame. The best teacher I ever had one of the finest men I ever knew spoke of that trail often. It's our birthright, he'd growl. Our character, our fate, our DNA. The cowards never started, he'd tell me. And the weak died along the way. That leaves us. Us. Some rare strain of pioneer spirit was discovered along that trail, my teacher believed. Some outsized sense of possibility mixed with a diminished capacity for pessimism. And it was our job as Oregonians to keep that strain alive. I'd nod, showing him all due respect. I love the guy. But walking away, I'd sometimes think, geez, it's just a dirt road. That foggy morning, I'd recently blazed my own trail back home after seven long years away. It was strange being home again. Stranger still was living again with my parents and twin sisters, sleeping in my childhood bed. Late that night, late at night, I'd lie on my back, staring at my college textbooks, my high school trophies and blue ribbons, thinking, this is me? Still? I moved quicker down the road. My breath formed rounded, frosty puffs, swirling into the fog. I savored that first physical awakening, that brilliant moment before the mind is fully clear when the limbs and joints first begin to loosen and the material body starts to melt away, solid to liquid. Faster, I told myself, faster. On paper, I thought, I'm an adult. Graduated from a good college, University of Oregon. Earned a master's from a top business school, Stanford. Survived a year-long hitch in the U.S. Army, Fort Lewis and Fort Eustis. My resume said I was a learned, accomplished soldier, a 24-year-old man in full. 
So why, I wondered, why do I still feel like a kid? Like the same shy, pale, rail-thin kid I had always been. Maybe because I still hadn't experienced anything of life. Least of all, it's many temptations and excitements. I hadn't broken a rule. The 1960s were just underway, the age of rebellion, and I was the only person in America who hadn't yet rebelled. I couldn't think of one time I'd done the unexpected. If I tended to dwell on all the things I wasn't, the reason was simple. Those were the things I knew best. I'd have found it difficult to say what or who exactly I was or might become. Like all my friends, I wanted to be successful. Unlike my friends, I didn't know what that meant. Money, maybe. Family, house, sure, if I was lucky. These were the goals I was taught to aspire to, and part of me did aspire to them instinctively. But deep down, I was searching for something else, something more. I had an aching sense that our time is short, shorter than we ever know, short as a morning run, And I wanted mine to be meaningful and purposeful and creative and important, above all, different. I wanted to leave a mark on the world. I wanted to win. No, that's not right. I simply didn't want to lose. And then it happened. As my young heart began to thump, as my pink lungs expanded like the wings of a bird, as the trees turned to greenish blurs, I saw it all before me exactly what I wanted my life to be, play. Yes, I thought, that's it. That's the word. The secret of happiness I'd always suspected lay somewhere in that moment when the ball is in midair, when both boxers sense the approach of the bell, when the runners near the finish line and the crowd rises as one. There's a kind of exuberant clarity in that pulsing half second before winning and losing are decided. I wanted that, whatever that was, to be my life, my daily life. At different times, I'd fantasized about becoming a great novelist, a great journalist, a great statesman, but the ultimate dream was always to be a great athlete. Sadly, fate had made me good, not great. At 24, I was finally resigned to the fact. I'd run track at Oregon, and I'd distinguished myself, lettering three of four years. But that was that, the end. Now, as I began to clip off one brisk six-minute mile after another, as the rising sun set fire to the lowest needles of the pines, I asked myself, what if there were a way, without being an athlete, to feel what athletes feel? to play all the time instead of working, or else to enjoy work so much that it becomes essentially the same thing. The world was so overrun, the daily grind was so exhausting and often unjust. Maybe the only answer I thought was to find some prodigious, improbable dream that seemed worthy, that seemed fun, that seemed a good fit, and chase it with an athlete's single-minded dedication and purpose. Like it or not, life is a game. Whoever denies that truth, whoever simply refuses to play, gets left on the sidelines. And I didn't want that. More than anything, that was the thing I did not want. Which led, as always, 
to my crazy idea. Maybe I thought, just maybe, I need to take one more look at my crazy idea. Maybe my crazy idea just might work. Maybe. No, no, I thought. Running faster, faster, running as if I were chasing someone and being chased all at the same time. It will work. By God, I'll make it work. No maybes about it. I was suddenly smiling, almost laughing, drenched in sweat, moving as gracefully and effortlessly as I ever had. I saw my crazy idea shining up ahead, and it didn't look all that crazy. It didn't even look like an idea. It looked like a place. It looked like a person or some life force that existed long before I did, separate from me, but also part of me, waiting for me, but also hiding from me. That might sound a little high-flown, a little crazy, but that's how I felt back then. Or maybe I didn't. Maybe my memory is enlarging this eureka moment or condensing many eureka moments into one. Or maybe if there's such a moment, it was nothing more than a runner's high. I don't know. I can't say. So much about those days and the months and years into which they slowly sorted themselves has vanished. Like those rounded, frosty puffs of breath. What remains, however is this one comforting certainty, this one anchoring truth that will never go away. At 24, I did have a crazy idea. And somehow, despite being dizzy with existential angst and fears about the future and doubts about myself, as all young men and women in their mid-20s are, I did decide that the world was made up of crazy ideas History is one long processional of crazy ideas. The things I loved most, books, sports, democracy, free enterprise, started as crazy ideas. For that matter, few ideas are as crazy as my favorite thing, running. It's hard, it's painful, it's risky. The rewards are few and far from guaranteed. When you run around an oval track or down an empty road, we have no real destination, at least none that can fully justify the effort. The act itself becomes the destination. It's not just that there's no finish line, it's that you define the finish line. Whatever pleasures or gains you derive from the act of running, you must find them within. It's all in how you frame it, how you sell it to yourself. Every runner knows this. You run and run mile after mile, and you never quite know why. You tell yourself that you're running towards some goal, chasing some rush. But really, you run because the alternative, stopping, scares you to death. So that morning in 1962, I told myself, let everyone else call your idea crazy. Just keep going. Don't stop. Don't even think about stopping until you get there. And don't give much thought to where there is. Whatever comes, just don't stop. That's the precocious, prescient, urgent advice I managed to give myself out of the blue and somehow managed to take. Half a century later, I believe it's the best advice, maybe the only advice 
any of us should ever give. And that is the end of the chapter. It makes me want to go for a run. I uh, have this book in my classroom, but I'm sure you could find it online as well. It's called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight.